You are listening to a Spoken Word Ministries podcast. Our heart is to proclaim the gospel and equip believers for ministry. If you're interested in learning more about our ministry, go to www.swma.ca. You can also find us on Facebook. Now sit back and enjoy this message. So I'd like to I'd like to take you to Psalm 21. I got thinking about Psalm 21 because a friend of mine, uh, um, you know, uh, made comment here the other day that they had stumbled. You know, uh, they had fallen back into an old sin and fallen pretty hard. And the request this prayer this person made was pray for me that the Lord will forgive me. And uh, it struck me. You know, um, got thinking a little bit about. All the other people I've talked to recently uh, that struggle with a sense of guilt. Who here struggles with guilt? So there's so all of us okay. So we're all we're all believers in Jesus, right? We all believe that He has forgiven us. We've re- received the forgiveness, but we still struggle with guilt. And Paul talks about you know that shouldn't be so. So you know the practical side of me goes, okay, Lord, you know, this has got to be more than just theory, you know, that we're forgiven. Where is the practicality when we're all believers here and we're all struggling with this sense of guilt that just goes on and on and on? You know, that sense of guilt should not be the thing that rules us. You know, we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be joyous. Anyway, so that got me thinking a little bit more. And so, I just I was drawn to, um, I was drawn to uh, Revelations twenty one. Revelations twenty one is actually one of my favorite passages for funerals, of all things, um, and I like it because you can read it with a thunderous voice, and it's just like hammer blows to the heart of every person that's in the room, right, uh, in the moment of a funeral. And so it uh, it talks about, well, I like the passage before it too, where it talks about the great white throne and all that kind of stuff. And actually, you know what, maybe I'll start reading there. Uh, Revela- Revelations chapter 20, verse 11, and then we'll roll through into 21 up to about verse 8. And it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. 
and there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So as we read that passage, what stands out for you? Let's go back to the top of it and let's sort of walk our way through. But what, what stands out for you? <clears throat> I mean, it's a picture of heaven, right? So he talks about the great white throne. He's talking about the day of judgment. And basically, at the end of time, when God calls for the day of judgment, the Apostle Paul talks about we will know that day because the heavens will roll back like a scroll. We'll see him coming in the clouds. Those of us who have believed will be caught up. Uh, you know, I remember doing kids' sermons on this, you know. And, and asking the kids, so when we get caught up into heaven, yanked off the earth to go up to heaven, do you think we're going to punch a hole through the roof, or are we just going to sort of phase through the, the roof, like some kind of Star Trek thing? What's going to happen? You know, because, uh, I mean, if I got to go through that roof, i got several layers of roof over me, you know, I'm taking some bruises. Um, uh, what What's going to happen? Anyway, so we always, I like getting the kids talking about that. So Paul talks about that, right? He said, that day when we hear the trumpet sound, and then we will stand before the throne of God. And it basically says at that point in time, everybody who has ever lived on the face of the planet will be called out of the grave. They will be called out of Hades, which, you know, in the Old Testament is called the place of the dead. Uh, and everybody who has ever lived through all history will stand before God to be judged. God's going to pull out these books, and in the book, the book of life, our names are written. If we have trusted Christ, if we are part of the body of Christ, our names will be written, and those books will be read out. And if, our, if we have not trusted Christ, our name will not be written in that book of life. So how do you get into the book of life? Simply put, you say yes to Jesus. You receive the forgiveness. The scripture says we get membership in the in the in the family of God at that point, and our name is written in the book of life. Uh, so people that will stand before God are those whose names are written in the book of life. People who stand before God will also be those whose names are not written in the book of life, those who have rejected Christ. And we will be written based uh, or judged based on, based on what we do. Um, then it goes on, you know, I, I think about John. Somebody came to Jesus, I think it's in John 8, no, John 6, and he said, uh, they said, what, what do we have to do to do the works of God? So when you think about the works we're going to be judged on, immediately we tend to go to all these performance-based things, like did I do good enough, did I keep the rules, did I keep the law, did I, whatever. They came to Jesus in John 6, and they said, what do we have to do to do the works of God? Remember, the works of God, the, these works that we do are what we're going to be judged by. Jesus said simply this, he said, Whoever believes in Christ, he says, the works of God are this, believe in the one whom he has sent. The moment we trust Christ, the scripture says, our sins are washed away. 
And so when we stand before God, that is what we will be judged for. We will not be judged for the failures. Okay, who, who here cursed last week? That might have been me, right? Who here uh, failed last week in some other way? You judged somebody, you gossiped about somebody, you drank too much, you did... You get what I'm saying, right? This friend of mine that that, uh, that contacted me the other day, you know, uh, her stumbling was into a little bit of old substance abuse. She did that last week. Um, and I, I just go... That those are the things we think about. But the scripture says in the moment that we've trusted Jesus, all our sins will be washed away. And the thing that we will be judged on is really only one work. God will speak over us and, said, and say, you believed in my son. I now judge you on that belief. And I judge you to be innocent. You know, uh, the picture of a court of law comes to mind. When a judge declares his judgment, he either declares it in two ways. He declares you innocent or he declares you guilty. That's what the throne of God will be like. On the day that we stand before him, he will judge us innocent because we have believed in Christ. And we think, okay, but what about all the other stuff I did? God will look at us and say, you believed in my son. Your sins are washed away. Enter into the glory of God. For those who have refused Christ, they will stand before God for all of their sins. So this whole judgment thing, uh, you know, is something that comes to my mind as I think about uh, that great white throne room. <clears throat> um, we will be judged not on our day-to-day -day stumblings. We will be judged simply because we trusted Jesus and allowed him to wash our sins away. Uh, and, you know, that's when, you know, Niall and I, we, we, we sit over at my house. Well, we do a lot more at my old house than, than sit. Niall's been uh, one, one, of my, uh, one of my great gifts over at that place. But we take our coffee breaks and we sit and we talk. And, um, and you know, we, we, this, this is where the practical, the practical reality of the gospel is. When we come into the lives of people who are living in guilt, we have the power to say, have you trusted Christ? Well, yeah. Well, good. <laughs> then your sin is forgiven. You're not paying for that anymore. It's gone. Why are you hanging on to it? You know, Jesus has come and taken the garbage out. Why are you hanging on to the bag that he just shoved into the garbage can? So this idea of being judged before God, we will be declared innocent. Um... It's interesting because the picture here, death and Hades, Hades is called the place of the dead. And apparently it's sort of like, uh, I always I always liken it to a remand center. Anyone know what a remand center is? So when you get arrested, right? And I, I got a couple of my, my friends that have been arrested uh, repeatedly. Um, and they get arrested. And uh, the cops don't trust them to let them go and show up at their court date. So what they do is they slap them in remand which means that when your court date shows up, we know where you are and we're coming to get you and you're going to get judged by the judge. Uh, Hades is sort of like that. It's sort of like heaven's remand center. When we died today, if I was to die and I didn't believe in Christ, I would be in a place called Hades. It would be the place of the dead. And I would be waiting there for judgment day to come, where I stood in front of the great white throne. Now, it's interesting because Jesus hanging on the cross <clears throat> looked at the thief who said, remember me. 
And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so I think about paradise, I think of sort of like heaven's um, waiting room. It's sort of the equivalent of the remand center, but it's a positive place instead. We've died, we're in Christ, and we are in paradise. And on that day of judgment, paradise is done away with as well, and we stand before the judgment throne. It says that on that day, Hades, it says heaven's remand center, will be picked up and thrown into the eternal fire of hell. But we will come into the presence of God forever. And we will live in that joy with him. So it's it's quite an amazing picture. Um, you know. And then he says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death or sorrow or crying. There will be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat, sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So this idea of God, um, God's plan for us, he will wipe away every tear. And, you know, just by the number of hands that, that, you know, went up when I asked who here deals with guilt on an ongoing basis, a sense of failure on an ongoing basis. I didn't perform well enough. I didn't do well enough. There are things in my life that I can't overcome, all that kind of stuff. Things that cause stress, pain, all that kind of stuff. Jesus says, in that day, <coughs> all that stuff's going to be gone. So those of us who struggle with mental health in that day, that's going to be gone. Those of us who struggle with physical health in that day, that's going to be gone. Those of us who struggle with people that hate us or don't like us or make things hard for us in that day, all that will be gone. This is our hope and we look forward to that day. Even though, as Paul says, for a time we might have to uh, live, um, live with this. So, um, yeah. Thoughts about that? You know, I, I always—that's one of the reasons why I like this as a as a funeral passage, because at a time of funeral, when there's when somebody has passed away, when somebody's died, it's a time when people are looking into eternity, and it's a time when people are dealing with loss, and it's a time when people are dealing with pain, and it's a time when people deal with the things that they should have said would have said if they had the time, would have done, all that kind of stuff. It's a time oftentimes of guilt and, and uh, shame. And to point people to heaven, there is a day coming when God will wipe away every tear and there will be no more mourning, um, no more crying, no more pain. So it's a word of great hope. You know, and then I, I look at verse 5 and it says this, Behold, I make all things new. Um, who here saw the uh, Passion of the Christ, that movie, The Passion of the Christ? So if you look at the movie, The Passion of the Christ, remember the scene. The scene is uh, Jesus, and he's got the cross on his back. back. He's been beat silly. He's covered with blood. And he's making his way up the Via Dolorosa, which is the way of the cross. It's the way to the cross. This big, long road that you had to walk carrying your cross. He gets about halfway up, 
and uh, he slips and he falls and the cross lands on him. And Mary, his mother, is sitting in the wings. She's sort of off in a side street and she's following this journey up and she can't take it anymore. And she runs out and she drops to her knees beside Jesus. As he gets up, they lift the cross sort of off him and he starts to get up and she's there beside him and she touches his face with a towel and he looks at her and he says, Behold, mother, I am making all things new. And I knew when I saw that scene that, that okay, there's a bit of a misquote. I don't remember that in the in the, the gospel accounts of the uh, of the uh, the way to the cross. So I went looking for it and I found it in Revelations 21. And that's what he says. He who sits on the cross, behold, I make all things new. That is what Jesus did on that cross for us. He died to defeat the power of sin to rule our lives. So those of us who struggle with guilt, Jesus died to defeat the power of guilt. you got to remember, guilt is very logical. There's always a logic behind guilt. There's a belief system behind guilt. I did this, I did that, I failed, God is mad at me because why? Well, I did this, I did that as a kid, my parents were mad at me. Whatever, however, we come up with that logic. And the devil feeds into that logic and he says, you don't deserve the love of God. You did this, you did that, you failed here. And, and God says to us, behold, I have made all things new. You are new. You are clean. I think about the little babies that we had come into our house. Four times I stood beside the birth table while Jacqueline gave birth. Four times they put these beautiful little babies in my hands. And four times I fell in love with these babies, not because of what they did, but because of who they were. God has made us new. And so when we hang on to the old garbage, we're acting like we're still the old self. You know what? Jesus, have you forgiven me? Yes, I've forgiven you. Then it's time for me to let go of this thing that I'm holding on to. Yeah, but this thing that I did, uh, it, it caused all these, all, all these bad consequences. Okay, so I got people to apologize to or I got people to pay back. So what? But I don't carry the guilt anymore. Behold, I make all things new. And then he said, it is done. And that is the same cry that Jesus cried out on the cross when he said, it is finished. It is complete. So, you know, I think about my friend here this last week who uh, fell into some old sin. And her request was, please pray that God will forgive me. The reality is that God has already forgiven you. He's already forgiven you. Um, he said it is done. You know, and sometimes we think about, okay, forgiveness of sin has to be a linear thing. I do the bad thing, then I get forgiven. No, that's not the way it is. I do the bad thing, I look back to the cross where Jesus cried out, it is finished. And I say, thank you, Lord. This is what I've done, and I have been forgiven. And I walk under that forgiveness. And I don't have to pay for the forgiveness, and I don't have to make myself suffer for the forgiveness, and I don't have to soak in the guilt to make myself extra sorry. I just received the forgiveness. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And I think this is one of the things where it comes down to, for me, 
There's two groups of people standing before that cross. There's the ones who reject Christ, and there's the ones who said yes to Christ. They are not a group of people that one group performed badly and another group performed well. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees who thought they performed well. And he said, you know, you guys are the worst to everybody. So it's not a performance issue. It's a trust issue. It's a belief issue. And he says <clears throat> to them, I will give of the fountain of the water of life. The fountain of the water of life is of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is the life of Christ that comes to live in us. And he will give us of this Spirit. Why? Because we're thirsty. What does a thirsty person need? thirsty person needs a drink. A thirsty person needs water. A thirsty person is aware that they can't meet their own needs themselves. And so they thirst, you know. And Jesus says, I will give from that, that fountain to those who thirst. So what's the requirement that we have before God? The only requirement we have is thirst. You know, if you were sitting on your deathbed, you know, and I think of some of the guys that I've met over my life that have been on deathbed, uh, on a deathbed. They've been told, your life's at the end. <laughs> and at that point in time, it doesn't matter whether you got enough money. It doesn't matter whether you got enough uh, stuff. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. The only thing that matters is what's coming. And so he... he you know, getting getting that priority. What is it? What is it you thirst for? What is it we thirst for? I'm thinking here. You know, today, Lord, if only I could be filled with you always and know that filling always. Because there's times when I get a little dry. And I felt like God's going, "I am with you." So it doesn't depend on my performance, and it doesn't depend on what I feel like. No, I am with you. Act like it. You know. I mean, I'm with my kids all the time too, and they don't always, they don't always go, "Oh, Father, you're with us," <laughs> you know. Uh, but I am with them. So you know this whole this whole idea, we come to God thirsty. What? Who here is thirsty? You know, if we could say, "Lord, I'm thirsty for more." He says, I will give you of this water without cost. You do not have to perform for it. So if you have sin in your life, if you have failure in your life, you, you track that by looking for the guilt, right? Um, somebody says, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not aware of any sin. Okay, well, do you feel guilty? Yeah. Well, then there's some there, right? You track it by the guilt, right? And then in that place, we invite Jesus. In that place, we thirst for Jesus. But we don't just stand at the fountain and thirst, we receive as well. It says to he who overcomes, hold it, we're back to performance-based language. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Who's he talking about? He who overcomes. Who overcame? Jesus overcame. I always read this like it's talking about me. He who overcomes. Jesus overcame. And Jesus inherited all things as the Son of God. And Jesus then said to those of you who are my brothers and sisters, I give you all things. You are part of the family. You will inherit all things as well. We have overcome simply by saying yes to Jesus. He has overcome 
sin in us. Does that make does that that make sense? Our overcoming is just simply in that faith response that says yes to him. And he says, I will be his God and he shall be my son. And by the way, it means daughters too, right? I will be your father and you will be my daughter, my sons. But the cowardly, and then it, then it goes back to the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is a second death. You know, and and one of the things I got talking with somebody here this week was the difference between those who are dedicated to their sin and those who struggle with sin. So who here struggles with sin? Well, we all struggle with sin, right? But are you dedicated to that sin? Or are you dedicated to Christ? Uh, remember, I remember a guy I went to school with and he had a certain lifestyle that he was promoting. And we were, we were studying in seminary at the time. And his main thing was his lifestyle. And he wanted to validate his lifestyle. And so when we came to certain uh, Bible passages that spoke against his lifestyle, his response was, Oh, we got to doctor that passage a little bit. What do you mean we got to doctor that passage a little bit? Well, it doesn't agree with, with the way I want to live my life. So I'm going to doctor that passage. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I call it shoehorn theology. We're going to shoehorn our Bible into what, into, into the lifestyle we want it to fit. And when parts of it don't fit, you dump those parts of it, right? But as I talked to this guy, it became, I became aware he was not interested in Jesus. What he was interested was in his lifestyle. He worshipped his lifestyle. And that's what this talks about. It doesn't talk about those people that struggle with sin. You know, we could go to Romans 7, and Paul talks about in Romans 7, he says, he says I, when I do stuff that is bad, he said, and yet my heart cries out to do what is right, he said, I've become aware that, there, that and in the depths of my spirit I serve God, but in the weakness of my flesh, I mess up. Who will set me free? Thanks be to God in Christ. So there's two groups of people out there. There's groups of people that worship their lifestyles. Those people are lost because the person on the throne of their life is themselves. And you could be, what, what's the list it gives us here? Cowardly. Unbelieving. A cowardly person is interested in preserving themselves. Unbelieving. That kind of person is not willing to trust God. They refuse it. Nope, I'll do it myself. Abominable, the stuff they do that's against God's design. Murderers, people who kill other people's. Sexually immoral, people who live their sexual lives in a way that they want rather than according to God's design. Sorcerers, those who manipulate uh, spiritual powers. Idolaters, again, those who worship other things. Liars, those who are dedicated to deceit, right? It says these are the people that are lost because on the throne of their life is something other than Christ. But what about if you're a person that struggles with your sin and you keep stumbling? A lot of people over the years have struggled with sin and stumbled and yet still on the throne of their life is Jesus. So what's, what's the response that we have to such people? Well, I find myself going back to 1 John 1 9. What happens when a believer stumbles? Let's go to 1 John. Where am I here? 
Look at this massive Bible. It's taken a long time to flip the first John. Okay. I'm almost there. First John. It says. Let's see here. Flip the one more page. We got one more page to go. It says. Uh, first John. Where am I here? There we go. There we go. It says if we, well, let's go First John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That passage says that all of us have sin in our lives. There's a teaching out there in the church today that talks about, you know, and I've heard this over and over again, that if we, uh, if we have given our lives to Christ, we cannot call ourselves sinners anymore. We are no longer sinners. We are saints. That's actually not true. We still struggle with sin. But we are also saints because we have trusted Christ. I like Martin Luther's writing on this because he talked about the saint and the sinner. I am both at the same time. I still struggle, and yet I have trusted my Savior. Right. So what do we do for those folks who are Christian? What do we do with those folks that have given their lives to Christ and said, you are my God, and then they stumble? We get to say, what have you done? This is the practicality. What have you, okay, Niall, what do you do? <laughs> Niall says, well, I did this. Well, your sins are forgiven, my friend. No, but that's not good enough. I got to work it off. No, you don't. You can't work it off. Yeah, well, I don't deserve the joy of accepting the forgiveness. It ain't about what you deserve, buddy. It's about what you're worth. Come on, let's do this. And we pray. And we, we step into the forgiveness. And we let Jesus do what Jesus did at that cross. We offer him the thirst of our hearts, a thirst that continues regardless of how we have stumbled. Like, that's one of the things about people that get thirsty, right? You get in situation by situation, you drink, and then you need to drink again. And I mean, I'm not going to talk about John 4, where Jesus tells the woman at the well, she'll never thirst again uh, uh, right now, because that illustration doesn't really fit this. But you get what I'm saying. Every time we get into a place where we've failed, if our heart is for Christ, we drink again of his presence, and it washes our sin away again, because it was already defeated on the cross, and we live as his people. You know, and I think that's one of the passions of my life, because I, I'm, uh, I, I stumble lots. I need that refreshment over and over again. Um, and I meet a lot of people that stumble lots, and they need that refreshment over and over again. And I work with church groups where everybody sort of is, you know, there's a lot of phoniness in churches. People who, you know, go, they, they sort of go, well, you know, I received forgiveness a dozen times, and I'll just pretend I didn't sin, right? So that everybody thinks I'm actually a good Christian. Nonsense. Churches that like that are, you know, pretty shallow. We need gatherings of people where every time we see that shame rear its head, we get to say, let's receive the forgiveness. Let's stand in the forgiveness. God is not, we don't have to beg God to forgive us. We need to go to God and let him forgive us because that's his passion. 